John 17, verse 20. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me the glory which you have given me. I have given to them that they may be one just as we are one. I am them and you in me that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you have that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory, which you have given me for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Amen. Now, I want to divide these few verses into two parts for this afternoon. I want to suggest that Jesus here has two things in view in his prayer at this point, in this section. One is the sanctification of the universal church. And then secondly, and it's also very closely associated to the first point, the glorification and union of the universal church. The sanctification of the universal church in point one, point two, the glorification and union of that same universal church. Now, let's look at verse 20 again. And I want to tie this in. We have to remember that um, this is also adding to what we saw just in the last few verses of the last time we looked at this passage. You'll notice that Jesus says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone. And we have to ask, what was it that he was asking on behalf of these? Now, who are the these? The these are the disciples of his. And that we saw earlier in our series So now Jesus is saying here, I am not asking only on behalf of these 11 guys, these 12 guys, but rather, he says, but for those also who believe in me through their word. Now, what exactly is he asking, not just for his disciples, but for everybody? And that's where I think you have to kind of move your eyes back up the page a little bit. And it's that they would be sanctified. See it in verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth as you sent me into the world. So I send them into the world for their sakes. I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. So it's clearly that is the context for the petition is their sanctification. But in verse 20, what changes is the scope of that prayer. Formally, Jesus was talking about his own sanctification being set apart Unto God as a perfect offering that was about to take place and that as he sanctified himself, that God would also through his word sanctify his disciples. Now, in verse 20, what you see is that Jesus is saying here, I'm asking now just not only for my 12, but those who come to believe in me through their ministry, through their word. And I want you to notice four facts about verse 20, four sub points here with regard to this verse. Number one, Jesus intercedes. Notice that he says, I do not. And I'll put the emphasis here. Ask on behalf of these alone. What is Jesus doing here? He's asking. He's 
praying. Now, this is not only uh, Jesus's ministry in his humiliation. I want you to understand that, boys and girls. Jesus prays for us in his glorified ministry. That is, Jesus has really two ministries. One is what you'll hear me call oftentimes the earthly ministry of Christ. And then the glorified or the heavenly ministry of Christ. This is one of the reasons I think um, Luke has a two volume set. One, the Gospel of Luke is Jesus's earthly ministry. Then Luke writes volume two, which is the ascended ministry of Christ done through the apostles. Christ ascends to heaven. He is coronated. And at the coronation, he gives the spirit to the church in the upper room. So Christ continues in that ministry on our behalf. And we ought to be grateful that Jesus is praying for us. Think about how it's encouraging when we hear people say, hey, I've been praying for you. And we think that was encouraging to know. And think how much more encouraging it is when we realize that Christ is saying, I am praying for you. That Christ has a vested interest in our own sanctification. So Christ intercedes. Number two, notice here that the <clears throat> this is sub point number two, that, that the intercession of Christ is for the church universal here. Christ is praying now for the entire body of Christ through the ages. All those that the father has given to the son in eternity past in the covenant of redemption. Now Christ is praying for them. Number three, notice here, though, in order for these promises to be applicable to you, you're going to have to exercise due faith in Christ. Notice in verse 20, he says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but he says, for those also who believe in me through their word. Notice that personal faith is requisite to be included in the promise of this petition. If you want to be prayed for by the Lord Jesus Christ, then you need to put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is not praying for the whole world here, he says. I'm praying for my whole church. And if you want the prayers of Christ for your own life, you're going to have to go to Christ by faith in him. And that's my fourth point. The means is by which faith comes is the word of God. Notice in verse 20, he says, who believe in me through their word. What is the word here? The word is their word. Who's their word? The word of the disciples. So that basically, to put it another way, that remember, Jesus said he gave his spirit to the disciples. And people often misunderstand this promise. Jesus said the spirit will lead you into all truth. He's not talking about you and me in the you. The you is the disciples. That Christ will lead the disciples into all truth. Now, it has applications for us. But I'm saying that the promise really originates for the disciples. The spirit was given so that the apostles could teach infallibly. They could write epistles inerrantly by the guidance and help of the Holy Spirit, even though it's still they as men, as individuals writing in their own style. And but it, it is that word of the apostles, which is now the word of God, because it's inspired by the spirit of God. And so he's praying here. For those who believe in Christ through the word. So 
Um, the, where is their word? Well, their word is recorded for us in the New Testament. The, the apostles were pleased to write these things down and God has preserved them for us and that we, when we use the means here, God is pleased to bring us to faith in him and sustain us. So, um, so I wanted to mention those four subpoints here with regard to sanctification. Um, Christ is praying for you. Christ is interceding for the entire church. You need to exercise faith. So young people, that means you need to, uh, at an early age, put your trust in Christ Jesus. And how do I do that? Well, I, I utilize the, the Bible. Faith, we are told by Paul, comes by hearing and that of the word of God. So children, it's important uh, that you not daydream uh, during the sermon, but try to listen carefully as you have ability. There are a variety of abilities. I realize the five-year-old does not have the ability of the 12-year-old who does not have the ability of the 15-year-old. But nevertheless, to each one's ability, we ought to try and listen carefully to the word of God. This is how God builds our faith. This is why also probably not a bad idea to review sermons with the kids um, in the afternoons uh, to help them with what they heard and to know that they're going to be asked (laughs) that uh, what did you hear in the sermon today? But I want to talk about um, the rest here, verse 21 to 24, and that's the glorification and union of the church uh, and in the union of of the Godhead. Again, these are um, really remarkable verses that there's a depth here to this prayer and there's a lot of mystery here. I don't know that I understand some of the things that that Jesus is saying here, but I'm going to do my best to try and unpack them for you uh, as we go through this. So I'm going to take verses 21 to 24, and I want to talk about that issue and the theme of the glorification, the union of the church. And then I have some applications at the very end here uh, for us uh, to go home with. Um, let's look at verse 21, first of all, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. I might be able to preach an entire sermon on that one verse, but let me see if I can net it out here for you. What is Jesus praying for? He's praying for the union of the church. That is, Jesus here is making an analogy whereby the church would be united and in union with each other, even as there is a union and a communion among the three persons of the Godhead. Now, in this prayer, particularly, he's focusing on the father and the son. But I think I've shown you from previous sermons that he's not excluding the Holy Spirit. We see that actually elsewhere So that's why I'm adding among and not just though literally in this verse it's between the father and the son. But it applies among all three persons of the Trinity. And that is this. There there is a union and a communion within God himself in his being. God is one, but he exists in three distinct persons. And that as there is perfect communion and union among those three persons, father, son, spirit, Uh, That he's praying that the church might share in this union with each other as they share in that union with Christ. Now, I hope I didn't lose you there. 
You saw it in the Lord's Supper. Let's make it as simple as possible. We're our young kids here. Boys and girls, there was one bread at the beginning of the service, wasn't there? We broke it into two pieces, right? We distributed it. And those who were communicant members took a piece of that bread and they ate from it. So what did we what did we show by doing that? We showed a couple things. One, that there was one body. And we each partook by way of communion of that one body. Signifying that we also have a union and communion intra-personally among ourselves. As we are all united to Christ, and by virtue of our individual union with Christ, we thereby are in union with each other. We are members of one another. And so Paul goes on and explains to the Corinthians that so if one member is suffering, the whole body suffers. And I've given you that illustration before. You know, you walk through your bedroom at night. You have to get up in the middle of the night. You stub your toe. You hit it on a piece of furniture and your whole body you know, goes into action. It's not just that your toe reacts, but your mouth says, ouch. Your hands reach down to comfort the toe. You know, um, you might, you know, go and get ice or whatever, apply it. You know, the whole body gets into action there. Christ here is praying for his own glory, that he would be glorified in the world. And what Christ is saying here, here is the means by which my glory is manifest to the world. It's the union and communion of the believers. That even as God is glorified in his union with one another in the persons of the Trinity, God is also glorified in the union and communion that believers have with one another. Notice here that Jesus states this really even as a as a, if you will, a goal, if I can use that as a term, he says, so that the world may believe. That the world may believe that is there, there's an aspect here to the Great Commission in this truth. And I'll get to that more later in the applications. Look at then verse 22. Christ here speaks of the glory that is given to him. And what is this glory? I think it's the glory of Christ risen, ascended and coronated. Look at verse 22. He says, the glory which you have given me. Now you say, Pastor, how can you say that's the glory of the cross and the resurrection and the coronation, the ascension coronation, if he hasn't gone there yet? Well, I think what Jesus is saying here, he says, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. What is this glory? That is given to Christ. I think it is the glory of his finished work. Even though Christ has not yet. Actually finished that work yet. Nevertheless, what Christ I think is doing here is in prayer is anticipating its accomplishment. Remember, this is the final week of his life in this chapter. So Jesus is nearing the point of his arrest, his trial, his execution here. So he knows that that it is about to descend upon him. And so I think he's praying with some anticipation. Christ here has been given a glory, which in many ways is still future. But this glory, he has given it to his church. Now, how can you give future glory to a church present? 
How can Christ give glory uh, involving his death, resurrection, ascension, coronation to you now? I think what Jesus here is saying is that he's praying that this glory, which is a future glory consummated, nevertheless is presently begun by the spirit in regeneration, faith and in sanctification. That is the glory given to the disciples and to the universal church is is the glory that is still awaiting us in the consummation. But remember that that future glory is tied to a present reality in regeneration, faith and sanctification. Christ has begun, put it another way, Christ has begun the, your glorification. We tend to think of the glorification of the believer wholly and solely future. I'm arguing here the glorification, though it is distinct from sanctification, it begins with sanctification. This is why sanctification is so important, because it's the provenient work of God prior to the glorification. Sanctification leads to the glorification. That's why the Bible makes such a big deal about sanctification. Don't think you're going to heaven if you think you're justified, but you're not pursuing sanctification. Sanctification is the, is the rail tracks that we ride our train on, in a sense, to, to our future glory. That glory has been inaugurated. Um, I don't think without doing it injustice, you might think of it in terms of a pregnancy in some sense. The inauguration of the of the new life. But doesn't come to full fruition until after the birth of the child. Uh, There is that incubation period, that gestation period, which is our sanctification in this life. So. How then does giving of the of Christ's glory to the church lead to union and unity of the church comparable to the union in the of the persons within the Godhead? Uh, Because remember what, what he's saying here, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one just as we are one. I am in them, you in me, that they may be perfected in unity. So what is what does that union between the Father and the Son have to do with the perfection of unity in the body of Christ? Well, I think the answer is this. that the church, the church grows in sanctification toward a future glorification. And so the church's oneness, I think, is realized increasingly in that sanctification. That is, as you grow in grace, And become more like Christ. In many ways, I think you're also growing in your communion with others who are in Christ. You're growing in the union with others. Does that make sense? That that the, the sanctification process should not be thought atomistically. Meaning it's only me and God. And I'm growing in grace. But as I grow in grace, my sense of union and communion, I think, with the church also grows and matures. 
thus the church's oneness is realized increasingly in sanctification and I think is fully realized in glory. You know, I, I once had a Christian woman tell me, I, she said, I, I can never be your friend. And I thought, <laughs> I had a couple different reactions to that, but one of them was, that's one of the strangest comments you could make to a fellow professing Christian. Because we're going to be in heaven together. What, what exactly do you think that's going to be like? <laughs> um, and, and so I think, you know, Christ here is saying that our, our sanctification, it, there is a corporate sanctification as well as an individual sanctification. We're Americans, so of course we stress the individual sanctification of the believer. But I don't think that's what Christ is emphasizing here in this prayer. He's emphasizing a corporate sanctification of the church that is realized in glorification when all sin is eradicated within the church. Um, Christ, verse 23, Christ is in the church. His spirit is in us. The spirit, the Holy Spirit is called the spirit of Christ. The spirit dwelleth within us. We are now the temple of God. The old covenant ceremonial temple of brick and mortar is gone. It has been destroyed as we saw from the morning sermon. Not one stone left upon another. Christ is building a new covenant temple whereby his spirit dwells not in a building made by human hands, but built by Christ himself, regenerating sinners and adding them to the body of Christ. So Christ is in the body of Christ. And what Jesus is saying is that there is an analogous connection to that and the union that is existing in the Godhead itself. Or himself, I should say. The Father is in the Son. That union is perfected. in, And that unity between Father and Son is perfected. There, there's no disunity at all, between father and son, father's commitments and son's commitments. And I, I, I think I emphasized this a week or two ago. You have to realize that when the, in the covenant of redemption, before God created the world in eternity past, when the triune God decided on the salvation of men, when he made a covenant, he made it within himself. The father and the son made this commitment to our salvation but it's not as though one party wanted it more than the other party wanted it. It isn't though that, hey, the father has this bright idea and the son is just going to acquiesce to it. They're both equally committed. There's no there's no disunity at all, even in degree. Among the persons of the Trinity. The spirit is equally committed to your salvation as is Christ. I mean, think about, you know, I don't think we give the spirit enough credit. He has to take up residence within you. Um, you know, I don't want to get too creative in my theology, but I've sometimes wondered about the, the humiliation of the spirit. Um, having to take up residence within sinners. Uh, for their sanctification. And I say I don't want to get too creative. It's just it's just. Boy, doing theology, it's, I'm not deriving that from other sources, but I've often wondered about that as we think about the humiliation of Christ dying for sinners. What about the spirit 
Who has to dwell within those sinners. So Christ is in the church. The Father and the Son are in perfect agreement, perfect unity, perfect union as to this covenant of redemption. And that, that, that union between the Father and the Son brings them glory. The glory of God increases um, as they are perfected in that unity. Now, this union becomes then the template for our union and unity. This will glorify Christ in the world. That's what Christ is saying. Jesus is praying that those who have been chosen of God would be in glory with Christ and with the Father. What I want to do is focus on about a few applications here. First application is this. I think I have three. The first application is this. The glory that Christ has begun to work within you as believers is in one way needs to be realized in daily life in the way we treat other members of the body of Jesus Christ. We are to strive, albeit imperfectly, because we're still sinners. We are still nevertheless strive for that unity that does perfectly exist in the Godhead. That we be of one mind. So I think when you think about that, that helps us to understand the exhortation, for example, that the Apostle Paul gives us in Philippians. Have this attitude within yourself that was and is in Christ Jesus. That although being in the form of God, equal with God, very God of God, and yet he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but did what? He humbled himself. Uh, He emptied himself for the sake of our salvation. Willingly. And so what does Paul then say? Well, he says that's to be our attitude. We are to try and strive for the unity of the church as best we can. Jesus said something very similar to his own disciples when they were squabbling with each other about who's the greatest. And he said, look, guys, the Gentiles lord it over one another. That's the way the world works. That's the way. It works in business and politics is they just it's it's power, raw power exercised over others. And Jesus says that's not the way it works in the Godhead. And it's not the way it's going to work in the church. That he who wants to be great in the kingdom must learn to become the servant of all. And so Jesus even gives An illustration of that in the upper room prior to his going out into the night when he washes the disciples' feet. Here's an example of it. But him who wants to be great in God's kingdom, strive not upward, but downward. Secondly, the Great Commission depends in part on our working toward a greater realization of our union with one another, not just Within ourselves congregationally, but with the entire body of Christ. This can be difficult for me as an OPC minister who can, yes, be provincial at times. To realize that the body of Christ is bigger than even the reformed faith as much as we want to maybe think otherwise. And we have to look for ways 
to work towards a greater union with others. Now, I do think that union needs to be a union rooted in truth. I'm not for hand-holding with people who want to deny the fundamentals of the faith of Jesus Christ. I think people who do want to emphasize unity can sometimes make that mistake. Start holding hands with people they shouldn't be really holding hands with. But it is something that we have to work towards. Here's my last application. And that is God's love for you um, is emphasized here as well. If you look at verse 23 and uh, he said, you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. God's love for you, the church, is that of the same love for his son, which is amazing. You are not loved distinctly in yourself or apart from Christ. That is, you are loved for Christ and in Christ. You are loved in the Son for the sake of the Son. Now, the, what makes this a greater love than a lesser love is this, that what kind of love does the Father have for the Son? It's an infinite love. The Father... Being God has a love for the Son who is God. And the love communicated to the church is the same love of the Father to the Son. That is, you were chosen not because you are lovely. You were chosen because you're in Christ. You were selected in Christ. Therefore, you are loved to the degree that Christ is loved because of your union with Christ. That love, Paul says in Romans 8, has no height, width, depth, or breadth. Think of this and meditate on this for yourself as an encouragement. I am loved of the Father with infinite love. I am loved with an infinite love and it's evidenced, as we saw at the table today, in the death of Jesus Christ. Christ would die, in some sense, an infinite death, if I could put it that way, meaning he drank of infinite wrath. I mean, think if if one if Christ does not die for a sinner, how long does the sinner have to pay for that sin? Well, eternity. Infinite amount of time. So what kind of penalty did Christ miraculously in the space of those last three hours pay for sinners? He paid an infinite price. And thereby you have this evidence of infinite love For you, because of Christ, you will be in glory. And Christ is saying here, you will be with the Son and the Father and the Holy Spirit together. And forever, the union and the communion will be complete. It will be consummated. And there won't be anything that will be able to break that. You would have to break the Trinity apart itself. In order for that bond of love between you and the Father broken. Because it's been paid by the infinite work of Christ. Amen.